AMSA AdLib is supported by the academic group. Students on a clinical elective, a rotation, or just observing are required to carry short-term medical malpractice insurance. The academic group offers AMSA members worldwide a 10% discount on this coverage. Visit our website for details at amsa.org academicgroup. As the 19th Surgeon General of the United States, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy works to educate the general public about their own health. But drawing on his own background and lessons from his personal journey, he offered sage advice at AMSA's 2015 convention to medical students about overcoming challenges they'll face in training, the value of their youth and enthusiasm, and the importance of taking risks. When I was in elementary school, uh, living in Miami. Uh, I was woken up in the middle of the night and it was my mother who woke me up and she, I was puzzled, you know, I was startled and she just said to me, you know, wake up, we have to get you in the car and we got to leave as soon as possible. And I didn't know what was going on, but she put my sister in the car, she piled me in and then my father started driving all of us to a trailer park in Miami. And I slowly learned over the next few minutes that my father's patient, uh, Gordon, had just passed away after a long battle uh, with metastatic, uh, metastatic cancer. And the reason that we were going to the trailer park was to visit uh, Gordon's uh, newly widowed uh, partner. And my parents were concerned that she would be grieving alone. Uh, and they wanted to, to go there and to be with her during that uh, most difficult moment. And that was a very important moment for me. Uh, and I only realized that years later. Because as a kid, I spent a lot of time in my parents' office. My father is a primary care doctor. My mother doesn't have the letters MD or DO behind her name, but she played every much, every much as important a role in helping to build that clinic, and more importantly, build the relationships uh, with patients that became the hallmark of their experience. And that also became the hallmark of my experience as a child who spent afternoons and weekends in the clinic sorting mail with my sister, cleaning up, being receptionist with my sister when the receptionist wasn't there. And through those experiences, we got to see that medicine was about more than making diagnoses and treating patients uh, with medications, but it was also about building relationships with patients. It was about understanding who patients were and going to where they were, metaphorically as well as literally just as we were doing that night uh, in Miami. So they inspired me to go into medicine in the first place. But that wasn't the only lesson that they taught me. Because over time, they also taught me lessons about being a good citizen. And these came from my grandfather. My grandfather was a, a poor farmer in a small village in South India. He raised my father and five siblings, uh, largely alone because my father's mother passed away from tuberculosis uh, in the village when he was, uh, my dad was only 10 years old. So my father actually raised many of his siblings along with the help of his father. But my grandfather used to actually spend several months out of the year traveling around from village to village, raising money to build a youth hostel so more kids could have a place to stay and could actually get an education. And people used to say to my grandfather that he was crazy. Because they would say, you know, your family doesn't even have enough food to eat. Your family is taking the grain that they boil each night and diluting it so they will have more volume to give each other. And in that setting, 
where do you, where do you, you know, how do you take time off and go and raise money for other causes? And what he would always respond with was, was a very simple answer. And he would say that there are always people who have greater need than we do. And it's all of our responsibilities to do what we can to take care of those people. And this was what he called being a good citizen. He used to often say that the only thing he wanted of his kids and of his grandkids was for them to be good citizens. And that's why my parents passed down uh, to my sister and I as their greatest hope and expectation of us. It was also the reason why my parents uh, encouraged us to get started very early on in life when it came to addressing the problems that we saw in the world around us. As my parents would often say, you're never too young or too old to make a difference in the world. All that matters is that you have a desire to and that you try. And so that's what we did. When my sister and I were, in, were 17, when I was 17, she was 18, we were both freshmen in college. And we realized, you know, through some experience, a trip that we had taken the summer before, that there was a growing problem with HIV in India. We realized that, this was in the uh, early to mid-90s, that not many people wanted to really deal with that problem. Uh, it seemed like the government uh, wasn't taking action as quickly as we had hoped. Uh, it seemed like the private sector wasn't sure if this was really an issue or not. Meanwhile, the WHO was predicting that India was going to hit 5 million cases by the year 2000. So we were concerned. And we built, uh, started our first nonprofit organization together that year, an organization called Visions, to train and educate, to train students, students like us, to be educators, to go to India, to help conduct workshops. And more than educating folks, we wanted them to help recruit students to be educators themselves, to go into their communities and help people learn about how to prevent HIV. Now, some would say that this was a, a silly pipe dream. And they would have been reasonable in thinking that because we had zero experience in building an organization. We had never really, uh, certainly we had never really worked abroad in India. We were also just starting college and had no idea what was in store for us. Uh, so there's every reason to believe that we should not have done this. Uh, and I will say as, a, as, a, you know, as an Asian immigrant, uh, you know, distra getting distracted from your studies is exactly the wrong thing that your parents usually want you to do. <laughs> But we were fortunate that while our parents were nervous about what would happen with their studies, they were also encouraging of us to go out and to do what my grandfather had said years ago, which is to be a good citizen, to address the needs that you see before you, to recognize that you're never too old or too young to do so. So that's what we did. And it was a fantastic experience. You know, we learned through trial and error. We failed just as often as we succeeded. But over time, we built an organization that operated in several cities in India and a number of cities here in the United States uh, working to create education pro programs not only abroad but here at home. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, it was one that not only taught us a great deal, but that helped us build long-lasting long friendships with people who shared similar values, who came together around a vision, an improbable vision that was fundamentally grounded in the idea that young people, even despite their lack of experience, could make a real difference in the world. And that's what we did together. And that gave us the encouragement to go on and to build our, our next nonprofit together uh, called Swastya, which was a community health partnership in a small village in India where we trained young women to be basic healthcare educators and healthcare providers. Now keep in mind, these were women who lived in some of the most challenged villages in India. 
in some of the most conservative parts of town as well, where the last thing a young woman was expected to do was to actually go out and talk about difficult health issues like alcohol, contraception, and things of that sort. But that's what these women did. They were only 16, 17, 18 years old, but over the course of just months, they transformed from shy, reticent folk, uh, women to leaders. And I remember spending time with one of them one day as she walked seven kilometers each way you know, to, to and from work. And I remember being next to her when a village elder approached her. And he whispered into her ear and he motioned her aside. And keep in mind, he was, he was a man, she was a woman, but he wanted to talk to her separate from me. And so they chatted you know, by the tree for a few minutes. And then she came back and I said, what was that all about? She said, you know, he had questions about contraception. He wasn't sure how to use contraception properly. And he wanted to ask me for advice. And I thought, what an extraordinary moment that was, where a village elder, a man, approaches a 17-year-old woman for advice. Because that's how transformative that experience had been for her and had been for so many others in the village. These experiences were extraordinary for me and my sister. They taught us a great deal, they helped us build friendships, but they also set a standard for us that we would adhere to for the rest of our lives. A standard that told us what kind of calling, what kind of occupation, what kind of work we wanted to do, what kind of passion we wanted to feel, what kind of fulfillment we wanted to experience in the work that we actually did. And suddenly, just doing a job for the sake of a job didn't seem acceptable anymore. It didn't seem like something we could actually do and we started searching for what would be next. And I remember being in medical school and thinking to myself, God, I love what I'm doing. I love clinical medicine. I love the science of it. I love the humanity of it. I love the opportunity to build relationships with patients and I love the peers uh, that are gonna be my colleagues for the rest of my life. But I also knew that there was something else that I wanted to do in addition to clinical medicine. I kept thinking about the experience that we had had building these programs which created scalable change in ways that we could never have imagined. And I wanted to have a taste of that in the future as well. But those experiences you know, ultimately led me to, to where I am today, which is to have the great honor and the great privilege uh, to serve as our country's Surgeon General. And I take this, res uh, this role uh, with great, a sense of great responsibility. Um, I, I take it with great seriousness because I know that the challenges that we face in our country are great today. Challenges that all of you are, are well aware of, whether it's with obesity and chronic disease, with uh, our ongoing challenges with smoking, uh, whether it's with substance abuse, which is escalating, particularly prescription drug abuse, or whether it's with the more recently discussed challenges that we have with immunizations and making sure that even though we have the tools to prevent illness, that it's not always a, a given. Uh, that we will make use of those tools and, uh, and do what's needful. So these are the areas that, the challenges that we have to focus on. But I also want to make it part of my goal over these next few years to modernize how we communicate from the Office of the Surgeon General, to ensure that we are communicating to the many streams that are out there through different channels, through different means, with different messengers as well. And I also want to make sure that we are going beyond information dissemination to thinking about how we can work directly with communities to translate information into action, which is arguably the harder but the more challenging and important uh, of, of, the, of the two things to do. So that's what lies before 
me in this office, that's what lies before all of us in the country is a challenge that we have to take on. But the, three, the, the lessons that I'd like to just briefly share with you are ones that I try to remember myself that I've gathered from some of these experiences and from some of the mentors uh, that I've been blessed to have along the way. The first lesson is to take risk. Risk gets harder and harder to take as you get older. And it so happens that we often overestimate the weight and the consequences of failure. It's often not quite as bad as we think. In that moment where I took a, a risk, so to speak, in working a part-time job after residency when everyone was going off and doing something different, felt very weighty at the time. But at the end of the day, if I had come out of that year with nothing in terms of an other idea to work on, or two years, what would have really been different? The way one mentor put it to me is he said, look, at the end of your life, if you've practiced full-time clinical medicine for 40 years or 41 years, it's not gonna make that much of a difference. But if you've taken a year and done something that you were genuinely passionate about and excited about, that could make all the difference in the world. The second lesson that I actually learned was to think short-term and not long-term. And this might be counterintuitive to some of us who have been trained to think about one-year, five-year, 10-year plans to plan who you want to be uh, in your second and third career when you're just figuring out the one that's right before you. But I will say that sometimes it's not important or as important to, tr to think that far down the line because we miss what's happening right now. And sometimes the most important thing that you can do is to think what would make me genuinely happy and passionate right now? What would make me wake up in the morning and feel excited to actually work on it? What kind of people do I want to go to work uh, with every day and feel privileged and blessed uh, to be able to create something with? So thinking short-term about what would make you happy and passionate and fulfilled now is sometimes the more important thing to do. And finally, the last lesson for me was about finding your anchors, which is that no journey to success is a solo journey. We do these things together, whether we realize it or not. And what's important is that you have and find people and honor people in your life uh, who can be those anchors for you. When I was going through, when we were building our visions program years ago, we used to bring people down together to Miami and uh, we would do trainings with them. And we would do all these icebreakers in the beginning to kind of get people comfortable with each other. And as one part of one of the icebreakers, people would just ask other people, they would throw out random questions. And one guy asked a question, he, he said, uh, what, what's a true friend? And as I remember one other uh, gentleman in the group, he stopped for a moment and he said, he said, you know, a friend is somebody who reminds you of who you are even when you forget. And I've always remembered that because it's true. Those kind of friends are anchors, and we all need those anchors to support us along the way. For me, those anchors have been my mother, my father, my sister, uh, my fiance, Alice, who's here with us today, um, who's certainly the more accomplished and smarter of the two of us, and many of you know her and love her already, as you should. And these anchors have also been my, my close friends, my mentors uh, from medical school. You know, these are the people who have been my anchors, and without them, yeah, I would not be where I am today. And I will tell you that in this role, after starting as Surgeon General, I think even more about those mentors, about those anchors, because I realize that you know, jobs like this have great highs and great lows. And you can get lost and swept away uh, in the highs and the lows. But the people who keep you there, keep you centered, who remind you of what this is really all about are your anchors. You, know, you are entering, you know, closing I will say, you are entering this pr profession at a time of great opportunity and great challenge. And I know there are always stories and polls that float around 
about the percentage of doctors who would not choose to go into medicine again if they were given the chance. You've seen those polls. You maybe have even met those doctors. Some of them have maybe even tried to convince you not to go into the profession or drop out while you had the chance. But those are not, I believe, the majority of doctors. That's not who I am. And I suspect that that's probably not going to be who most of you are either. And that's because even though there are great challenges around us, we also have unprecedented opportunities, opportunities to make and remake the healthcare system around us and the world around us into something bigger and better than what it is right now. And the joy of clinical medicine itself is still there, which is the ability to make a real difference in people's lives, to touch their lives, and in return to be moved and touched and shaped as well. And now in 2015, unlike any previous time in medicine's history, we have the opportunity, you more than anybody else, to go beyond the traditional definitions of a physician and to work with communities, to work with technology, to work with policy, uh, to improve health at scales that were previously unimaginable. That's very exciting. A few years ago, when we were having a Doctors for America meeting, I had a chance to sit down with our Seattle, uh, our Washington State State, State Director, who lives in Seattle. And she was telling me the story of how many years ago she marched with Martin Luther King during the famous March on Washington. And as she was telling me this story, I was, I was so captivated because I thought to myself, what would it have been like to have been there on the mall with all those thousands of people? What would it have been like to know that you were at an inflection point in history to not know which way it was going to go, whether your struggle was in a result in civil rights and equality or not, to not know if your day on that march would end in violence or not, to not know if you were going to get home safely or not, but to still show up anyway. What would it have been like to have been there and then to look back later and to tell your kids and your grandkids that you were part of history? And that made me think about right now. Because as it turns out, whether it feels like it always or not, this is a pivotal moment for us in health. This is one of those moments where we have an opportunity to address and to change so many of the things that we have struggled with for so long, whether it's inequality in our health system, whether it's the lack of coverage that so many families still face, whether it's the insecurity around food that millions of people, seniors and children still face. These are the things that we have the opportunity to, uh, to change right now. And there's unprecedented energy around solving these problems in the country. I say that not because I read it somewhere. I say that because I've seen it as I've traveled around the country as Surgeon General, as I've talked to people in communities, people who have every reason in the book to give up, to go home, and to not fight the battles for improving healthcare. But they get up every morning and they still do it. And the reason they do it is because they see that we have an opportunity to really do something big and at scale. And you can be a part of that opportunity. And when I think about that kind of moment that, that she had during the March on Washington, and I think about this moment now, I think about what we want to be able to tell our kids and our grandkids in the future. And I want us to be able to tell them that in a moment like this, when much of the country was fearful and concerned about what the future held, when many people were scared about what would happen with their health, when many parents were worried 
about the kind of future that they could build for their children. I want to be able to tell our kids and our grandkids that we stepped up. I want to be able to tell them that we stepped up. Over the years, as you go forward, there are many people you're going to encounter who are going <clears> to... <throat> Sorry, I didn't expect this. <laughs> as you go forward, there are many people who are going to tell you that you are too young, that you are too old to make a difference. There are going to people who are, who are going to tell you that you're too old to think about new technology, because those are the people in their teens and their early 20s, that you're past your prime. <laughs> there are people who are going to tell you that you don't have enough insight, enough experience, to really understand the gravity of the problems that we face, or the levers that we can pull uh, in solving those problems. There are going to be people who tell you that if you just had one more degree, if you just had one more residency, if you just had one more job, then maybe then you would position yourself in the right way to ultimately make a difference in the world. I don't want you to listen to these people. Because the truth is, and part of the reason I think we're all here, is that you have something inside you that told you that you have what it takes to change the world. And you may, always, may not always believe it. You may not always listen to that voice. But the reason that voice speaks up sometimes is because it knows something deeper. It knows that you actually do have the ability to change the world. When you look around us, you see examples of people everywhere across the country who are innovating and making a difference in small ways and big ways. You don't always read about it in the newspaper. It doesn't always make the headlines on CNN. But those stories are there. And one of the great privileges of this job is I've had, I have the opportunity almost every day to go out and to hear those stories and to be inspired by those stories. So don't ever believe that you're too young to change the world. Because when I hear people say that, you know, I think of the medical students and the residents who helped build and power the movement to redefine primary care in this country. I think about the medical students who go abroad year after year after year and work in clinics around the world. Because even though they haven't finished medical school yet, even though they don't have decades of clinical experience, they still believe that they can make a difference. So don't ever believe when people tell you that you can't change the world, because you can, and you need to because the world needs you. It needs you in a way that, you know, that's palpable every day when you go out and you see the challenges that we face. So the world needs you. So I hope, my hope for you in the years ahead is that you will choose to believe in yourself, that you will help each other also believe, because all of us are going to forget from time to time of who we are. And if you do, if you give yourself a chance, if you remember that ultimately 
your ability to change your world depends first and foremost on your passion and your willingness to do so. And there's no limit to what you can do. And I, I wish you all, you know, very successful lives. I wish you all careers that are deep and long and fulfilling. And most of all, I wish you all lives filled with much happiness. Thank you. How have you overcome a challenge and continued to believe in yourself? Email us at adlib at amsa.org or even record your story for us using your iPhone's voice memos app or an app like Easy Voice Recorder on Android. Email the recording to adlib at amsa.org. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. This episode was edited by Rachel Glassford and Pete Thompson with help from Carol Clark. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer. AMSA AdLib is now available through iTunes, so you and your friends can now subscribe directly through your iPhone's podcasts or iTunes apps. Let us know what you think about AMSA AdLib so far. Email us at adlib at amsa.org. Thank you for listening. AMSA AdLib is supported by the Academic Group. Students on a clinical elective, a rotation, or just observing are required to carry short-term medical malpractice insurance. The Academic Group offers AMSA members worldwide a 10% discount on this coverage. Visit our website for details at amsa.org slash academic group.